Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, a, co- a podcast that's all about, well, making sense of MarTech. I'm Juan Mendoza, I'm your host, and I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter, a weekly email that covers important shifts in the marketing technology industry. Today, I'm joined by Chris Baker. Uh, Chris is the founder of Totem, a brand strategy, marketing, data, and innovation consultancy with a keen focus on the Chinese and Asian markets. Uh, Totem helps global brands break into China and Asia and works with marketing leadership on digital and brand strategy in that region. So I actually met Chris uh, earlier this year in Singapore at an event, and he just blew my mind with an amazing presentation uh, kind of out of nowhere about generative AI and its consequences on marketing. Um, I think Chris is probably one of the clearest thinkers on how generative AI is being applied to marketing and the digital functions in business. And so I asked him to come and join us on the podcast to talk everything about generative AI um, and everything from looking at how it affects small and large businesses to how it it's impacting content quality, right through to how should you build a defensible brand strategy in the context of an environment where anyone can make content and scale it up as, uh, as effortlessly. So I bring you without further ado, uh, Chris Baker. How you doing, Chris? Hey, Juan. Great. Uh, very nice to be speaking with you again. And uh, thanks for the very kind introduction. Not a problem at all. And, you know, we, we love having folks that are uh, that are delving intellectually into some of the major topics um, impacting our industry. And generative AI is certainly one of those things. Uh, but I want to, before we get into that conversation about generative AI, I want to talk to you about uh, the Chinese market. Now, clearly, you don't have an Asian accent. <laughs> um, and you have spent a lot of time living in Canada and the United States. But I want to ask you personally, what excites you about China and why are you working in that space right now? <laughs> Sure. So, yeah, just to step back a little bit, I'll give you a little bit of my background. I, um, I'm originally from Canada, but spent uh, roughly 20 years uh, of the last 25 years living in Asia, um, a large part of that in mainland China. And um, the path as a marketer for me has been an interesting one combining uh, brand strategy work that I did with an earlier consulting firm. Uh, I spent a lot of time working with the large uh, forays, setting up digital me- media capabilities in mainland China. Um, and, and with Totem, we've really sought to kind of bring together both brand strategy and digital. And for, you know, at least the last 15 years, China has been one of the hotbeds of marketing growth in the world, really. Just because, you know, the size of the market, the intensity of uh, budgets, resource, and uh, intellectual focus going into China has meant that, you know, we've had some of the best and brightest marketing people in the world coming in there and trying to really figure out how to grow this plethora of brands, trying to conquer that massive market. And China is also uh, overwhelmingly digital in its approach to marketing. Um you know, which is stark contrast with mature markets like the US, Europe, Australia, where, you know, you have this great patchwork of both traditional and digital marketing. In China, it's 90% digital in terms of marketing spend. Um, You know, it's it's, uh, almost impossible uh, to kind of um, find quality traditional marketing in, in a market like China. So from that point of view, to answer your question, you know, I think what excites me about the China market is, you know, twofold. I think one is just the insane growth and uh, pace that has taken place in China, together with this incredible, interesting digital experiment that is more or less separate from the rest of the world. If you know, Facebook, Google, and the like are blocked in China. That's meant that we've had this kind of very isolated, separate ecosystem of almost entirely digital marketing taking place there. And um, I think what's been exciting for me in the last couple of years, while I've added global and regional Asia uh, to our remit as a company is 
taking those learnings from Asia and combining them with, you know, the best of what's happening globally. And, uh, and so I think there's a lot of really important lessons for global marketers from China and, and, and actually, um, the reverse is probably true if, uh, if uh, Chinese, uh, brands and marketers, uh, care to borrow from the West. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that there's, there's so much opportunity in China because, um, marketing is a fairly new concept as well. Like marketing traditionally has been a Western concept that we've kind of exported out into the rest of the world. And along with digital, with social, you know, you look at rise of TikTok and Shein, you know, some of the most powerful, fastest growing companies are coming out of China. Timu was another one, which is an Amazon competitor. I think about China and it's, it's literally, you know, I'm thinking increasingly that the shift from where all the talent density is and all the maturity and all the growth is shifting from west to east. It's shifting into places like China mm. and Asia because yeah. on that second wave, you know, it's like the Western world made all the mistakes and now, you know, the, the Eastern world get to learn from that and they can scale up social media far more quickly than we've ever been able to, right? Like TikTok is one of the fastest growing apps in the world. And so I, yeah. I look at China and I think, wow, what an amazing hotbed of opportunity. But I did not know that, as you say, 90% of the marketing is actually in digital, that there is actually mm. far less of a traditional marketing mix in most budgets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Opportunity. For, for sure. I think that combined, as, as I said, with the fact that it is a very, uh, for lack of a better term, discreet and, and separated marketing environment, just mm. means that, you know, there's fresh takes coming out of that market um, for what works and what doesn't in marketing. Uh, you know, and to give you an example, we, we've just published a report on um, the fastest growing brands from China who are entering onto the global stage. And some of the brands you've already mentioned, Xi'an, Timu, TikTok, they're eating the lunch of Facebook and Amazon, who, you know, famously, Facebook has, has not been able to develop its shops concept with any real staying power. And, and Amazon doesn't have an entertaining bone in its body. Um, you know, you contrast that with TikTok, who just sort of naturally combines entertainment, content and shopping all in one tidy package. It's, it's no wonder TikTok is this juggernaut. Yeah, I'm not surprised. There's so many layers to this as well, because that, although it's a hotbed opportunity, politically, yeah. it's a very different environment, you know, and you've got the tensions with Taiwan and China and, you know, the sure. Apex, you got to some of the Apex Summit, it seemed that, you know, um, yeah that a lot of those tensions are being reduced or diminished a little bit, but it is a very mm. fascinating time to think about the Chinese market and where your brand yeah. plays well, because you also bring brands to will help bring brands into China, break into that market. But I wanted to Correct. ask you, because I guess there is, it has to be a moment when you realized that's a thing, like that is the thing that we should go and pursue. And do you have a specific story or a moment when you realized the opportunity in China and you having to jump in and, and capture some of that? Uh, well, you know, I, my, my uh, story about transitioning, let's say from Canada to, to China is sort of uh, one of just small steps along the way, really, in the sense that, um, you know, I, I finished uh, a graduate uh, program here in Vancouver that as part of the mandate meant that I would, I would spend a year working in Asia that ended up being Hong Kong. And uh, when I landed in Hong Kong, I was working for, this is way back in year 2000, you know, an early player um, in the kind of e-commerce space there. So I, I was, you know, by way of that experience in Hong Kong, you know, pretty connected around year 2000 when China was entering the WTO and manufacturing was really kicking off there. Um, pretty connected to China through that experience. And then with my um, brand agency in Hong Kong, I, I transitioned fully up to Beijing in the course of building that company. At that time, as I say, you know, the, I, I, you know, the gravity of marketing was pulling people into that market. And if you were living in Hong Kong at the time, it was a natural step to get, to get to China. So, um, and, and the, the growth and, and development of that market has just been absolutely phenomenal. I mean, um, you know, bringing this back around to, 
you know, the discussion on, on AI a little bit, I, I, for all of my um, excitement and um, admiration for innovation in China around digital, you know, there's some things that, that China doesn't quite, hasn't quite consolidated and gotten right yet. And one of those things is, you know, data management at a brand level because of how fast that market has been growing. There's been a bit of a sense of like, just move quickly, break things and, and grow as extensively as possible. So the marketing environment there is one that, you know, is very acquisition focused and has not over the last, up until very recently, has not really paid too much attention to capturing data and really understanding the customer in a really powerful way. Um, we, we just co-produced a report with, uh, AMP, uh, with uh, Salesforce on uh, CRM in China, which I think they're intent on changing that and, and bringing China further along in terms of that customer management um, space. But we, we've also now, both through our um, offices in the rest of Asia, Vancouver, um, you know, re really centered around AI um, and, and what that looks like for uh, senior marketers and, and the CMO office um, from for slightly more of a brand point of view than uh, a really tactical one, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's something that I have just no visibility of at all. Like what's the state of data management for, you know, the um, orchestration of customer data in say Chinese brands. Mm -hmm. um, I, I take the assumption, which could probably be completely wrong, is that a lot of things in China, like India, run on marketplaces. So the um, the incentive of creating experiences on brands, like, you know, a lot of companies here in Australia have, a Shopify e-commerce store, they run e-commerce independently of any other marketplace and they just try to go direct. Um, there's yeah. a lot of TVC in Australia, in the US as well. It makes it seems to be more of a Western phenomenon. Whereas in India, particularly what I see in India is that a lot of companies don't even try and compete with their own um, e-commerce play. They just go to the marketplaces straight away and compete on price mm. because the scale and yeah. volume is very different incentive wise. And so, that's kind of my assumption, but I'm not sure if I'm wrong. It's okay to tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no, you're you're absolutely right from the point of view that one one of the one of the very good reasons that that China has maybe not embraced data and customer uh, or CRM in in as extensively as other markets around the world is the fact that yeah, so much of the marketing activity is locked up in into the hands of a few big players. You know, it may be a marketplace like Tmall, which would be the equivalent of an Amazon. It could be with WeChat, which is a monolithic messaging platform, which as a sidebar has in the past been an incredibly uh, useful source of data for marketers. There, you know, five plus years ago, the amount of data that we could get on customers from WeChat would make anyone in the, the West blush. I mean, we, we had information down to specific locations in some cases for where customers were at. That That's no longer the case. But so in, in one sense, you know, marketing ends up becoming, falling into uh, a practice based on the environment in which it lives, right? And in the case of China, you've got a bunch of really big platforms that dominate the landscape. And you're subject to how much data they're going to give you. WeChat was very productive for a long time. That's less the case now. Brands that are large enough are implementing, you know, really sophisticated data capture and data mining strategies now. But they're playing a little bit of catch up on that at the moment. Mm. Well, that is fascinating. And I think we should shift into generative AI now because I think that there is like overlaid with data management, data strategy, and how brand different brands think about it in different markets. You know, we've got in China, mm. we have, you know, the development of new large language models that are competing now with the US. You know, I think yep. it was um, Baidu, I think it was. Um, they've got a fantastic platform now where they, they're using um, generative AI. So the things are heating up. It's not just in the US where a lot of this activity is happening. Mm. 
Europe and in, in Asia, particularly China, there is a development of these technologies, which gives us a good sort of stepping stone into thinking about, well, we've kind of hit 12 months since the chat GPT concept went mainstream. You know, that was back mm. last year in 2022. It's now November, 2023, and it's been a full 12 months. And there's been a lot of change in the marketing technology industry. Mm. Let me tell you, oh my goodness, the amount of companies that have bolted on some generative AI tool tip, chat system feature, whatever, just bolting them on the existing product is unbelievable. Uh, the amount of yeah. stuff, I get a quote from from a friend of mine that's doing research in the marketing tech space, and and they reckon that there's been more than three thousand startups launched, like successful startups funded launched in the marketing tech industry alone, just in marketing using generative AI. And so I think about this industry, I'm like, wow, there seems to be a lot of change. But I want to come back to your perspective, and we're going to dig a little bit more deeper into how it impacts marketing specifically. But I'd love to just get your view. What's the broad brushstrokes here in terms of how generative AI and large language models have really impacted the marketing industry in 2020. Yeah. So I, in addressing this question, I'll, I'll probably look at it from the point of view of a, a CMO or, or senior marketer inside of a brand or organization. When I answer that, I, I think when it comes to tech firms who, who need to respond and, and create add-ons and widgets and all the other things, I mean, I think the change has been profound. But I think inside of the office of your traditional CMO or, or brand marketer, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I think that, you know, we've kind of, you know, there was peak interest level uh, around trying to grapple with understanding AI probably back in, let's call it March to July of this year, you know, where everyone wanted to kind of get a handle on where, what this was all about and how it is going to impact the marketing office or the marketing team. And, and I think, I think we're kind of somewhat past a little bit of that kind of peak moment and honeymoon period for the typical marketer in the sense that I think they probably played around a little bit. I think they've explored the possibility of uh, augmenting and or replacing some part of their team with a capability to develop content or collect information. But I, I think that when viewed against kind of a long-term um, uh, transformation landscape, I think we're in the really early innings. You know, um, the data that I, I think has been really useful in putting this into perspective is from McKinsey, who, who looks at sort of the time frame to do AI transformation being somewhere in the range of nine years compared to digital transformation that occurred, let's say, you know, in the uh, early aughts, you know, that took, you know, sort of in the range of 11 years, right? So if we assume that we're sort of one year into a nine-year journey for the typical brand marketer to trans transform, you know, it's, it's pretty early days. And I think there's been a bit of a sense of we've tried this on and we've kind of got a, a vague understanding for where this is all going, but I, I think it's falling into a little bit of the back burner for the typical marketer at the moment, if I'm honest. Um, and, and I think that, you know, marketers with, a little bit more long-term perspective will be taking this time to lay the groundwork for what I think are high organizational value uh, applications of AI and, and starting to understand and build the teams internally that can uh, help implement things beyond, you know, a great social post or an edited, uh, you know, um, blog post, right? Mm. Because I think that, yeah, there's, there is this angle, which is marketers are very quick to experiment with things because that's part of their job. You know, they mm. have to have the zeitgeist. We saw the same thing with the metaverse. We saw the same thing with crypto slash web three. We saw the same thing with voice about five, six years ago. We saw the same thing, ironically, with chatbots back in 2015. You know, everyone wanted a yep. message, message chatbot. 
And marketers will jump on these trends because it's their job to experiment. I don't denigrate marketers mm. for having a bit of a a bit of a fling or a love affair with the new trend because I think it yep. is actually worth exploring. The only way to explore it is actually trying to apply something in your brand. Um, yep. And marketing, like, like the thing I think that folks don't get about marketing often is that marketing is a it is a role or responsibility where you have a lot of waste. Like the waste is part of the value add because you have to go through the waste to figure out the one great idea yep. and everything. Yep. Um, yep. And, and generative AI is just no different. Actually, it's probably more of an exponential leap for generating more ideas um, and thinking more about how do you automate the work you do with already, but but it's not just automating or creating more efficiencies in marketing. It's actually using it to come up with new ideas or to give you perspective. Yeah. There's a, there's a yeah. creative aspect which is, I think, are the real breakthrough here. And I've, you know, from all over the place, I've seen people experiment with some incredible ideas for marketing. Mm. From example, uh, there's a Kansas Lions Award for a company um, that did, they were an agency that used generative AI to do a thousand different street art designs for a whole bunch of different, um, I think they were like taco, burger, burger stores, sorry, in New Mexico. Yes. Yeah. So, burger stores, so burger shops and, and restaurants in New Mexico, and what they did was that they used generative AI from the company. The actual client was a supplier of burger buns, but they used generative AI to create a custom version of each of the burger locations of a design, so they can sort of paint it on their walls or you know give them artwork to use. And that's an example yeah. of creativity and that exponential efficiency that you can get from from the work. And so I, I think about it and look at it, and I'm like, okay, well, clearly marketers marketers need to be experimenting and there's got to be some waste because if you don't have any waste, you're not mm. learning fine stuff. So, yeah. 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 No, I, no, I think, no, I'm right there with you. I, I think, um, as I say, look, I think that there's been a, a clear wave of experimentation in the, in the past, you know, let's call it year really. But, but I think we're starting to kind of see that tip down a little bit. And I think that experimentation was, was useful from the perspective of, Look, the everyone is going to be doing something with generative AI. If you're a large CMO in a large company, it was incumbent on you to figure out what are the two or three things that we can kind of latch onto right away and and really put a win on the board or put something on our kind of collective resumes. And there were some tremendous brand campaigns that came out of that. The one you mentioned is is was fantastic. Heinz is another great example where they asked uh, a, a visual AIs to create their vision for what a ketchup bottle looks like, and and they all end up looking like Heinz, of course, right? Which is a which is a testament to the power of their brand and their identity and distinctiveness, right? But as I say, you know, like. One of the things that I tried to focus on in the presentation that we were together at in, in Singapore earlier in the year was this idea that, you know, the content and creative is sort of the low hanging fruit here in, in this long kind of path towards creating larger and greater organizational value, right? And, you know, I think the content creative stuff is is sort of step one. I think, you know, Going back to bots, customer experience automation is probably step two, right? You know, ad targeting and scaling up geographies and new uh, target customer groups, um, probably a, a third stage. And then you get into things like, you know, customer insights, development of new products, R&D insights, predictive analytics, and, 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 um, and and those those being the the higher organizational value things ultimately right so you know the the pathway that or template that we're trying to create with the brands we're working with on this is to really map out this kind of value stream and figure out like what are you doing in the you know here and now the low hanging stuff and and what are the seeds you're planting towards longer term value yeah it, it... The I think the age of you alluded to it earlier. The age of experimentation is kind of coming to a tail end. You know, with anything relating to tech hype, and let's face it, right? Yeah. 
hype is its own thing. Like I would say that a lot of tech hype, particularly the Silicon Valley kind, where you have a lot of venture capitalists, you have a lot of investors wanting to spruik the latest wares, and then there's a trigger for capital, and then you get a billion startups in there, you know, getting capital, getting funding. Now that yep. happens a lot, and increasingly, I think with the hype, we're seeing that that's actually driven more by investor theses than it is actual tech. You know, we saw mm. that crypto and Web three, where a lot of the hype was actually about exit liquidity for VCs, you know, and people yep. went very rich very quickly. And you had folks like Bored Apes, which I think they actually used AI in their own program where they had versioning of like several hundreds of different um, apes, uh, cartoon apes. I, I looked mm -hmm. at that like, yeah, that's very much a VC thesis driven hypothesis here. The AI stuff is, mm -hmm. is, is very similar. It's a very uh, VC driven, but the characteristic mm -hmm. of a is that it just, it runs out of steam. You know, you can only run, you know, a hundred miles a minute, you know, for a minute, you know, you can only run so quickly yeah. and, and then you start getting tired and you get worn out. But now we're kind of settling into that, you know, that that phase of um, there's going to be some winners here that really leverage this technology to make it work and to create a lot of value, but yeah. it's still too early. There's just so much hype still in this space. And so- yeah. Shifting gears a little bit here, I want to talk a little bit about the difference, how it's influencing the industry in different ways, because that might be a good lens on who's going to be creating a lot of value out of this technology shift and who isn't. So, for example, right, there's a big shift between enterprise companies like large technology businesses and smaller companies, the SMEs mm -hmm. that can that use technology in drastically different ways. But could mm -hmm. you help me unpack how what's the difference there? What are the differences mm. between adopting generative AI and using it between the large and small companies? And what are you seeing? Yeah, so again, I'll, I'll frame this from the perspective of a, of a brand marketer, right? And say that, look, I, I think the I think the larger I think the larger companies have scored some some wins with, you know, the the Heinz, you know, commercial. Yeah, McDonald's has done some really interesting things uh, using AI to create, you know, new packaging and and using their kind of iconic brand codes and brand identity to, you know, demonstrate that even with AI, this brand kind of stands a, a above the rest, right? So I think I think the large brands have kind of scored wins there. I think smaller brands have what ai ai has done is really enabled them to jump into the game of of higher quality and higher volume content creation pretty quickly right and i i'd probably argue that actually some of the early wins have been maybe skewed more towards smaller brands in this in this case um because they're they're able to kind of start doing a lot more of what the larger brands have been able to do right more quickly, you know, the, the coaching to larger brands then is, well, look, don't get left behind with this, right? Like you, you're, you're in a, in a position of owning a large share of your market and the real returns in this space are going to come from some of those more difficult projects around AI when it comes to customer insights, R and D, and and things like predictive analytics, right? And so, you know, it's it's critical that they make those investments now because those are investments the smaller guys can't make, right? So that's that's the way I kind of frame the landscape is, you know, the early winners in this space are probably slightly more of the smaller firms or the uh, longer term winners in this will be the the bigger ones as always, as long as they um, make the investments now to to reap the returns later. Yeah, it's, it is. Um, there is a distinct difference across the landscape of how these tools are being applied. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's a big thing, right? So let's take the top yep. end. So we have enterprise companies. So you've got Bain that's working with Coke to implement generative AI into all their marketing functions. That's a massive mm -hmm. millions of dollars of you know yeah. consulting services, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. A big branding campaign to go. Coke is embracing this future of content creation and and, um, and marketing with uh, generative. Yeah. So let's go to like the top end of town. You think, okay, the consultants are actually, oh, well, the consulting firms are actually winning quite a bit out of this because they've got a brand new thing they can bring, a lot of unknown territory. They navigate a brand through that, right? And they work through it. 
So I can yep. definitely see that for enterprise, there is there's this application of um, that efficiency layer. I think like you mm. can do a lot more. Uh, for example, take take for example the digital asset management platforms, right? Uh, recently i see these platforms and they a lot of them are skewed towards enterprise because things like brand guidelines and compliance and you know mm -hmm. consistency really matter if you've got multiple regions and a massive multinational company you know i'm sure the companies you work with that are say based headquartered in the us however they've got a chinese mm -hmm. team there is a certain level of alignment in terms of the brand the assets the identity so dams play a role in managing that but um, there are platforms that are doing stuff. For example, second place of the TMW 100 awards program we ran, designer, mm -hmm. they, they're a dam and they they build for enterprise. Um, they've got creative tools as well. However, they have generative AI that allows you to create versions to localize content to your markets. So yeah. there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. I've, I work, I've yeah. worked in a company, I can't name them, an enterprise um, bank that were that I was talking with, they said that they use generative AI to reinforce brand guidelines, you know, so that gen AI tools, LLMs will actually scan the content and they will say, give you a score and whether or not it aligns with the existing brand guidelines, you know. So there's yeah. a lot of that consistency yeah. alignment. It's all the boring stuff, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's sort of all cool generating photos and imagery and all kinds of fun stuff. It's also the like boring as hell. You know, just the, and that's where a lot of the value in enterprise is because enterprise is about maximizing profit, um, you know, improving your margins. How do you do that? Well, you can really scale up and make your marketing more efficient by sort of untangling yeah. all of those inconsistencies in your creative um, application. So that's like enterprise. Yeah. Like, okay, clearly there's opportunities there. I, I'm sold on that. There's, you know, it's boring, but super powerful, yeah. particularly in content yeah. operations. But on the smaller side of things, like I look at small companies and, you know, the MarTech Weekly, we're not a huge enterprise company, but I look at my own examples and I think, well, there's some fantastic AI tools that can analyze data for me. I can upload a CSV and I can ask it questions and it can create charts for me. So I go, hey, mm -hmm. how was last quarter's sales? What were the anomalies mm -hmm. customers coming from? You know, and mm -hmm. I, instead of trying to build that out in Excel and pull data from different places, I can chuck all that data in a CSV uh, an AI LLM tool normalize the data for me and then give me the answers. Now, yep. as, as a company that I'm not a huge company, well, TMW is not a huge company, that saves us mm. a ton of time, right? I don't have to spend all afternoon yeah. with the tables and whatnot and joins and all that. I can just send that to an LLM, you know? I, I've yep. got a yeah, yeah. who, again, he runs a fantastic podcasting um, as a service company. Um, and mm. he, he automates almost all the content creation process. The questions that he asks mm. is yes, they're all generated, generated by AI. The wrap-ups, the summaries of the shows, the timestamps, all of that stuff mm. is actually automated with AI. And he's been able to bring on three or four new shows over the past 12 months, purely by that yeah. additional efficiency, but the added creativity element in his operation content operations. Uh, so yeah. as you can yeah. see, there's like, there's so many interesting pockets of innovation in this space, um, but it really comes down to make me more creative or make me more efficient. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think the way you've outlined that kind of in in a way illustrates what I what I think is the early gains enjoyed by smaller enterprises from the point of view that you know smaller enterprises tend to be a little bit more nimble and and less complex and. You know, whether it's yourself or somebody in your team who's got the liberty to use and trial and experiment with with these tools and um, things that are added on to um, existing um, tech, you know, it means that you're you're going to kind of ramp up and have a, a steeper learning curve and, and grow more quickly. Larger companies, you know, um, yeah, it's very, very hard to create those early learnings in an environment that is too large and um, stuck in in process and, and systems, right? And um, in, in larger organizations, there's got to be, you know, uh, ambassadors or champions in different areas of the organization who basically become the, the torchbearers for you know, learning and instructing and uh, trialing uh, new tech and then working to implement it across the organization, right? So 
that that just takes necessarily takes more time right and uh you know the uh the enterprise level solutions you know the uh ai capabilities within a lot of those is is still not quite at uh you know the top top level that an enterprise needs so they have to turn to people like bain hmm. and even look at yeah. Enterprise, enterprise packages they just launched that what like six months less than six months ago and they yeah. enterprise companies looking into llm there's this concept of you know building proprietary llms on your own data within your own company you know so yeah. things like um, internal company support and um and documentation and you know there's all of this stuff going on where they're like they're really it's just a total blank canvas on how you can use these tools the existing mm. That are pre-trained, yes, that's probably more geared towards small business, purely because small businesses don't have enough data to use work, and they usually small business has less data privacy and yep. legal concerns around how their data is being used. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Enterprises, I reckon, enterprise the companies that are building their custom LLMs that have data privacy and protection built in, you know, those mm. AI got in pretty early to that, I think. But you know, I think that there's there's a fantastic opportunity there. For each now, will absolutely, people, yeah. Will, yeah. Will people actually use these things in enterprise businesses? Well, let's be completely honest here. Enterprise companies are filled with people that are lazy, you know, and they love taking shortcuts. So now the incentives align pretty well, in my point of view. Yeah. Like, if yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I need to write an email to my manager. I can get an LLM to write it for me. I'm going to do that, right? You know, if I'm yeah. going to save a ton of time scanning data and analyzing it and just send it to an LLM so I can work on more creative stuff, sure, I'm going to do that. You know, but so there is a, a there's a good sort of um, framework of incentives in, in enterprise to embrace these tools, particularly mm. for the ones that actually allow companies to insource them and make them usable within their own confines. But yeah, you know, yeah, like I'm I'm very excited for it, of course, but I think that it's going to take some time to figure out. The biggest hesitation I have is the error rate and the hallucinations yeah. and yeah, the problem yeah. with getting very confident answers for <laughs> on very yeah. very wrong answers that are very confident uh i think that's a massive challenge to how much we can actually trust this stuff and yeah um, yeah but my, my view is that perhaps we dive into the next topic i want to get your view on the trust what? aspect like how are you seeing people trusting these technologies for say mission critical work mm. yeah maybe just if if uh indulge me a minute i'll just maybe go back to the the last thread a little bit and just build on something that you you talked about first of all absolutely agree i, th I think companies can and should be looking at building proprietary llms right I, I think that we've gotten to a point where the the cost of doing that if if you've got dedicated people on on site who, who know how to do it is such that yeah any large company should be on top of that right now and, and trying to figure out how to stitch that together with every piece of software they've got with in part you know the goal of bringing all of their information together and creating greater clarity across the organization but at, at the same time i think one of the highest value possibilities i see with that sort of endeavor is one where a company has incredibly interesting data as part of their business operations that you know sparks you know uh, a new offering as a company right and you know in a simplistic example that um you know i've used in past presentations would be i don't know like your uh, benjamin moore like a paint company who you know who has an incredible amount of information on color trends and what people want to paint certain things at different times of year, right? And that predictive capability that can come with, you know, building a data set on your own data um, can in, a, in and of itself become a really potent side business, right? I mean, there's obviously a lot of industries where data is highly controlled, but if it can be kind of well-organized and anonymized, you think about the powerful data that an insurance company has, right? Uh, we're moving into the question of trust now, but the 
the challenge, you know, the opportunity that an insurance company has with gleaning information about health trends and perhaps, you know, using that data to improve medical practice is hugely important, right? But but we're going to quickly uh, come up here in, in the coming year, I think, with a lot of probably increased regulation and question of trust and uh, everything else. And, and so some of these grand ambitions are going to be uh, made more difficult through that, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think the big breakthrough for mass consumers and for enterprise companies is the trust angle. And this is the, yeah. like, we could go down a philosophical rabbit hole here and talk all about, you know, the, um, the heuristics around trust and how we trust other people that are other sentient, intelligent people, beings, right? That we trust them to do work, right? You know, we trust them to show up to work. We trust them not to engage in fraud. We trust them to do mm. a whole bunch of things that are good for our business, right? And and they mm. avoid bad things. Now we implicitly trust other people, but we are think I think we are miles away from trusting large language models um, and AI platforms to do work and do reasoning and judgment on our behalf. I see attempts yeah. at this, of course, for example, Cognitive, sort of interesting loyalty platform based in Silicon Valley. Another one, much mm-hmm. larger, SAS. So they're obviously got a lot of development background, IT development tools background. However, they've got a very strong marketing technology um, offering as well. Both of these mm-hmm. folks offer what they call an, a complete marketing agent, which is fa- basically give it your goals, what who you're trying to reach, give us a general idea, and it'll build it all out for you. You press the big green button and then it'll start running the campaigns and optimizing them for you. Now, mm. sounds exciting, right? But if you're a marketer mm. looking at that, you're like, oh, okay. So I'm going to put all of my marketing budget into this black box and somehow it's going to give me a return, but I have very little control of what goes on in that black box. Does that sound like a good career decision? No, because mm. you have no control. Yeah. You have no control if it's good or if it's terrible or some error or it starts hallucinating and you lose money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, to your point, to your point, I mean, this past week, even, yeah, there are hallucinations and errors when it comes to stitching together loose facts, right? From the web, but even in the question of mathematics, you know, I, I was on chat GPT earlier this week asking chat GPT to run a, um, a loan repayment schedule. For me and and it got the math horribly wrong yeah and then i asked it to recheck its math and it made a secondary error which is even more wrong and i was like "Ooh, yeah we're you know we're a long way away from you know being bulletproof in terms of what comes out the other end um and you know i i think to some extent like um yeah, it, it's going to take some time to get over that. And and I think that large enterprises, um, as a result, are necessarily going to have to bring a lot of this in-house, um, both uh, their own language models and generative engines, but not just for running the the primary facts, but also doing kind of the the back backwards checks to make sure that everything is is correct, right? And so, um, you know that that uh, wow that that takes us to a whole a whole new place. I mean, it, it feels like we're potentially about to hit this kind of trough of disillusionment with AI here in the next year, right? If if yeah. this year was a, a peak moment and a honeymoon, you know, sometime in 2024, we may, may peak, uh, hit that trough. So, yeah. And yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be super surprised. I, I wouldn't be because, yeah. because in a lot of ways, the, the promise of the technology is really delivering. Okay. We've got a yeah. capable sentence finisher that can, you know, write us poems and great stories and, and chat with us like we're friends. Right. So yeah. a lot of it is there and it is impressive and the technology is wonderful, but there is from making something novel and usable and fun is a giant leap forward. 
from that mm. something that you can actually trust with your business. And now yeah. the question is, yeah. does it need that place in a business? Probably not, right? Like I use it all the time for ideas for content. I don't use it for research because I don't trust that the content is it will lead me down a path that you know that is false or inaccurate. So I never really use it for research at all. But I do use yeah. it. I use it for ideation. I go, hey, this is a headline. You know, what do you think? Give me ten versions. Or hey, you know, yeah. want to explain something a bit different? Can you give us? Or you know, for example, with HubSpot, it's got a generative AI tool that will give you, hey, what goal do you have for your email? And it'll write a few drafts of different emails for you. Pick the best one. Mm. Um, yeah. I think all yeah. those spaces are really wonderful because it just gives people mm. just a different lens of perspective, um, and it's handy and yeah. it's not. But like, is that worth trillions of dollars? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, I, like just to finish this off, I think that the concept of like the creation and the iteration aspect, Google is trying to do that with advertising. Same with Meta, like generative AI tools to spin up creative for your ad sets. And then if you do that and you've got this really interesting reinforcement aspect where you're getting results back from your marketing campaigns, say in a platform like Meta, that data is fed back into the content creativity tool and that that tool can give you recommendations to continue to optimize your creative for those campaigns. Now, I could see a yeah. use case like that being very effective and add mm. several hundreds of millions of billions of dollars on the bottom line of Meta, hundred percent. Because it just takes mm. the creative bit in campaign optimization is the hardest bit. Mm. You can optimize mm. the demographic, the targeting, the user journey. The mm -hmm. you can optimize all those bits. But it's a creative that's really hard to know because who bloody knows what's effective and what's not, you know? But mm -hmm. if you have this reinforcement loop, I think that um, that really helps with that. But again, it's um, I think the jury's still out. I think that we're just as likely to have a trough of disillusionment, as you say, than to mm -hmm. a dawn of amazing marketing utopia where we're making tons of money and, you know, uh, there's no worries at all. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I think that I think that concept that that you've brought up around using uh, AI across a greater range of applications to uh, ideate and come up with novel and and new ideas, whether it be for an ad or whether it be for uh, potentially an audience that has as yet been unserved in your business or a new product um, or, or new approach to doing business. I, I think, you know, that, that for me, once we get past this kind of fun with kind of playing with, you know, Dolly and, you know, uh, mid journey to create amazing images and, and, you know, that that's going to be one of the more interesting higher value applications of, of AI for marketing organizations moving forward, forward. Like, you know, for me, um, you know, having something that creates scenarios and then tests those scenarios uh, in terms of a, an approach to marketing or new product development, you know, that that's one of the kind of key stepping stones, I think, for brands in terms of where they need to be addressed or focusing their attention. Yeah. I think that there's there's so many unknowns. I mean, even as we speak right now, OpenAI is going through a, um, a very um, confusing time where they just ousted mm -hmm. this CEO. He might be coming back, the majority of stuff, yeah. you know. And there's, the again, you know, I'm thinking about all of the bearish cases here, all the situations where, this could not work out. And I think one of those that we're probably missing, which OpenAI kind of exemplifies here in the situation with the ouster of Sam Altman, the CEO, is that human nature always gets in the way of these things. I mean, internal politics yeah. and bad incentives and um, lack of clarity, friction in relationships. I mean, you apply, you add any technology layer over those anti-patterns and what are you going to get? You're going to get bad outcomes. Yeah. You're just going to get bad outcomes. Way, right and there's yeah. no AI that's going to solve that it's just uh, unfortunately yeah. there's no way an AI can help you mend a broken relationship mm. uh, yeah. or or a political situation where you're consistently blocked the only way you can solve that yeah. is with other people 
And I think that's it's interesting just to think like, okay, what's the sort of breaking limits of this? I think perhaps politics would be one of them. But I do, I do want to finish up our conversation here and talk a little bit about um, the implications for brands. Now, you have a fantastic point in the presentation, and we'll definitely link it to the show notes so that people can have a read through, mm -hmm. um, which is you talk about how, well, generative AI creates a situation now where anyone can create content very easily and effortlessly imagery, videos, um, music and songs and, and voice, mm. all of those tools, which used to cost a lot of money for people to actually produce them, you can now generate mm. them with AI tools. Now that takes the cost of content creation to close to zero in the same way that the internet took the cost of content distribution close to zero with things like social media and search. You can have one great article yeah. search and then it just gets routinely hundreds, I know folks that get hundreds of thousands of views every month on their content, purely by virtue of just sitting on Google search and people are searching mm. and finding it, finding it useful. Now, mm. generally I was doing the opposite of that, which is giving people, everyone, the ability to create content with very little cost. What that means is that our information ecosystem is just going to be flooded with crap. <laughs> and we're starting yeah. to see, you know, yeah. even, uh, this week as, you know, we're talking here towards the end of November, um, we're doing mm. a story right now on um, both Amazon and YouTube are trying to police faked content faked Amazon reviews using generative AI and then deep fakes of, pe of people doing videos on YouTube, you know, claiming to be celebrities or, or situations that aren't real. Mm -hmm. So what we're getting is this like inverse effect of, yeah, wow, isn't it amazing to create all this stuff and you don't need to learn mm -hmm. skills, but also, wow, this is a real mess because we're creating, we're seeding a lot of misinformation into the ecosystem and there's mm -hmm. just nonsense. But you have this brilliant point coming back to marketing, which is, that marketers more than ever need to create a defensible brand. They need to have this situation in their company where they've got a strong position on what their values and their views and to have that iconography so that they have a, a sense of which a, a customer can understand and trust them in a sea of so many voices with generative AI. So what's your view on as we round this episode out? What do you think about the importance of brand in this whole new world of content mm -hmm. creation? Yeah. So, yeah, as you say, right, AI and, and all of the amazing tools for content creation has really been a lift for smaller brands, right? And and it in turn, the knock-on effect is that larger brands have to lift their game even further, right? I, I think, you know, once we move past some of the deep fake stuff and, and all the other garbage out there, you know, I, I can foresee on the other side of all the BS that there's this brilliant future of much better content from brands sitting over there. Some of which will be probably, uh, even with larger brands supported and created with, with AI. But, you know, an, another take on this is that uh, at some point here, you know, I think some of the larger brands with the content that they create may turn to a point where they sign a manifesto of sorts that says that the content that they create comes from humans or, you know, they open up, you know, behind the curtain and, and let you see what's being created, right? Like, you know, we, we may be pushing in terms of this kind of content creation space towards a, a world of even greater transparency in order to prove that something is made by humans. But going back to the question about brands, I mean, as always, brands that really understand who they are and have a distinctive identity are the ones that are, are most well positioned to kind of benefit from this. I mean, the example I gave earlier in the discussion about Heinz asking AI to create and generate hundreds of ketchup bottles and they all end up looking like Heinz, you know, well, that's brilliant, right? It, it, it just shows to the market that, that this is the only option in the market. And, you know, we're, we're taking advantage of the identity that we've built. And so I, I think the challenge moving forward is going to be one of when brand search becomes um, changed by way of the fact that either we're 
searching for things by voice commands or through this kind of chat thread that we have with a chat GPT or similar, you know, and we ask, we ask the AI to find or identify three great running shoes for us. The challenge with that is that the companies that have the largest share of voice, so in the running shoe category, it's probably, you know, Nike and Adidas, and I, I don't know who the third one would be, but maybe New Balance, depending on what part of the world you're in. Those are going to be consistently the ones that are ranked by ChatGPT as the top players. So if you're the 10th or the 20th ranked player in the running shoe category, you're going to have a really hard time being surfaced when it comes to the new world of search. So I think the framework that we laid out for a world where brands or customers are searching for brands and things to buy uh, through a different interface is as a brand, you either have to be, you know, among the leaders and share a voice. So you're, you're ranking tops there. You've got to be, um, you know, distinct in terms of the psychographic or the demographic group that you serve, right? So, you know, is it for people that are kind of um, uh, of a certain age category or a certain gender or um, run a certain way, right? Um, you know, or you've got to really become distinct in terms of having a very unique functional capability, right? Because otherwise, you're almost going to be completely unobservable through AI moving forward, right? So yeah, you either have great identifiable brand, you know, you're targeting after a very specific type of person, or or you offer a unique functional benefit. Hmm. I, I can see that uh, that the land, but I guess the, the, the dynamics of differentiation are going to change a lot. Um, we mm. see that. And, you know, let, let's be honest here. A lot of the advice that we get from particularly academic marketers and folks that run their own research firms and all that are like based in the past. A lot of this world is changing very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think where we can leave marketers is, yeah, experiment and try this stuff. And mm. like most internet technologies, it does become zero sum. It does, there is a few winners that take the majority of, of the outcomes and the value. Mm -hmm. Then there's everyone else. Gen AI will be no different. Yeah. Companies that yeah. will leverage it and scale it. And those companies, unfortunately, will make it harder to for smaller players to actually compete with larger ones because, mm -hmm. as you say, Nike and Adidas are setting, because people talk about them more, there's more data about them. Therefore, generative AI, it makes generative AI more powerful on those vectors of those types of shoes. Therefore, the type of shoe that is, is shared through these generative AI platforms with creative is a Nike or Adidas shoe. Now, mm. that makes it really hard. So, you know, the companies that have spent the past 150 years building a brand are going to be the ones that take a lot of value just because they're already there, they're recognizable. Um, and so, uh, again, it, there's so much chaos and uncertainty, I think, with how marketers should be reacting to this. But if I could sort of mm. summarize that conversation up a little bit, I would say that that the experimentation part is key because it might be the difference between you building a, a brand that's 10 times bigger and a category leader um, with, compared to those who don't use it. So I think there's a lot of upside yeah. experimentation. However, yeah. the folks, the companies that already have a significantly large market position, they're going to automatically be benefited by this. There's no, there, it's, there, there is no surprises on my side to see BCG working with Coca-Cola. No surprises at all. Mm. No, mm. Coca-Cola owns a silhouette of a cola drink bottle. No, they own the trademarks of some of the most distinctive assets referred to your favorite bubbly drink and all the brands. Yeah. They own. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. Again, it's there's there's a unique opportunity for enterprises, unique opportunities for small businesses, and we can learn from that. Um, yeah. But also, yeah. Beware of using these two, these tools too much. For content creation, I think that's a, sort of our mm. last way is that if you want to be distinctive, you probably need people writing sort of hand to paper 
their original content because what we're going to get with AI is just recursive homogeneity. We're just going to get a lot more of the same thing that's optimized on the same thing over and over again. So you have to be radically different more than ever. Um, Correct. And again, it's very chaotic, yeah. very interesting. And look, mm. we may get into next year and then we might see a massive decline in these tools. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if we... But again, it's I think there's more than enough reasons for marketers to experiment at the top end of town and also in the small business to really figure out what the value yeah. is of these technologies. So, so yeah. Chris, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. I mean, what a wonderful conversation. Our first conversation in generative AI. I have no idea why I waited 12 months to talk about it, but we found the perfect person in you because um, I definitely recommend checking out Chris, reaching out to him and getting a view from his presentation because it really does distill what 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 we should be thinking about from a marketing lens. Um, and this conversation has really just been a very small snapshot of that holistic picture. So thank you again, Chris. But my last question for you is, where can we find you on the web and interact with you more online? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Juan. It was uh, great reconnecting with you and again, having a great discussion. Uh, I can be found... Um, primarily on LinkedIn. Otherwise, our website as a company is uh, talktotem.com. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely put yeah. your links to your LinkedIn and your website. You can find that in the show notes, folks. Uh, but we regularly interview folks that are thinking deeply about the marketing tech industry that really care passionately about the intersection between data technology and marketing. And so, Chris, we're really happy to have you with us. And thanks again for your time. Thank you.